Chapter 2 A Mystery Saints Sorrowing and Jesus Glad Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. John 11, 14-15 There lived in the little village of Bethany a very happy family. There was neither father nor mother in it, but the household consisted of the unmarried brother Eliezer, or Lazarus, and his sisters, Martha and Mary. They lived together in unity, so good and pleasant, that the Lord commanded the blessing there of life forevermore. This affectionate trio all loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were frequently favored with His company. They kept an open house whenever the great preacher came that way. Both for the Master and the disciples there was always a table, a bed, and a candlestick in the prophet's chamber. 2 Kings 4.10 And sometimes magnificent feasts were prepared for the whole company. They were very happy, and they rejoiced much to think that they could be helpful in regard to the necessities of one so poor and yet so honored as the Lord Jesus. But sadly, affliction shows up everywhere. Virtue may guard the door, but difficulty and sorrow are not to be excluded from the homestead. Scripture Man is born for trouble, as sparks fly upward. Job 5 7. Even if the fuel is a log of sweet smelling sandalwood, the sparks must still rise, and even so, the best of families must experience affliction. Lazarus became sick. It was a fatal sickness beyond the power of physicians. The first thought of the sisters was to send for their friend Jesus. They knew that one word from his lips would restore their brother. There was no absolute need for him to risk his safety by traveling to Bethany, they thought, for he only had to speak the word and their brother would be made whole. With glowing hopes and moderated concern, they sent a tender message to Jesus. Scripture, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. John 11, 3. Jesus heard it and sent back the answer that had much comfort in it, but could hardly compensate for his own absence. Scripture, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. John 11, 4. Poor Lazarus did not recover after the message came. He was a little more cheerful because he heard that his sickness was not unto death, but his pain did not lessen. The cold sweat of death gathered on his brow. His tongue was dry, he was full of pain and afflicted with anguish. At last he passed through the iron gate of death, and his corpse rested there before the eyes of the weeping sisters. Why was Jesus not there? Why did he not come? As tender hearted as he always was, what could have made him unkind now? Why had he waited? Why was he so long in coming? How could his words be true? He said, This sickness is not to end in death, and there lies the good man cold in death, and the mourners are gathering for the funeral. Look at Martha. She had been sitting up every night watching her poor brother. No care could have been more constant, 
no tenderness more excessive. There was no remedy available to her that she did not try. She gathered this herb and the other, and she gave Lazarus all sorts of medicinal drinks and nourishing foods. She anxiously watched until her eyes were red for lack of sleep. Jesus could have spared her all this. Why didn't he? He only had to wish it, and the flush of health would have returned to the cheeks of Lazarus. There would have been no more need of this weary care and this killing watchfulness. What was Jesus doing? Martha was willing to serve him, but would he not serve her? She has even troubled herself about much serving for his sake. Luke 10:41, giving him not only necessities but delicacies, and will he not give her what is so desirable to her heart, so essential to her happiness, her brother's life? How can he send her a promise that he does not seem to keep? How can he tease her with hope and cast down her faith? As for Mary, she has been sitting still at her brother's side, listening to his dying words, repeating in his ear the gracious words of Jesus that she had heard as she sat at his feet. She was catching the last words of her dying brother, thinking less about the medicine and the diet than Martha did, but thinking more about his spiritual health and about his soul's enjoyment. She has tried to lift up the sinking spirits of her beloved brother with words like these, He will come. He may wait, but I know him. His heart is very kind, and he will be here. Even if he lets you sleep in death, it will only be for a little while. He raised the widow's son at the gates of Nain, Luke 7, 15, and he will certainly raise you, whom he loves far more. Have you not heard how he wakened the daughter of Jairus, Mark 5, 42? Brother, he will come and awaken you, and we will have many happy hours yet. We will have this as a special token of love from our Master and our Lord, that He raised you from the dead. But why, why was she not spared those bitter tears that ran scalding down her cheeks when she saw that her brother was really dead? She couldn't believe it. She kissed his forehead, and oh, how cold was that marble brow! She lifted up his hand and said, He cannot be dead for Jesus said this sickness was not unto death. However, the hand fell nerveless by her side. Her brother was really a corpse, and decay soon set in. Then she knew that the beloved clay was not exempt from all the dishonor that decay brings to the human body. Poor Mary! Jesus loved you, it is said, but this is a strange way of showing His love. Where is he? He lingers miles away. He knows that your brother is sick. Yes, he knows that he's dead, and yet he still remains where he is. Oh, what a sorrowful mystery that the compassion of such a tender Saviour would sink so far below their plumb line to gauge, or that his mercy would range so high beyond their power to reach. Jesus is now talking about the death of his friend. Let us listen to his words. Maybe we can find the key to his actions in the words of his lips. How surprising! He doesn't say, I regret that I have waited so long. He does not say, I should have hurried, but even now it is not too late. No, hear and marvel. Wonder of wonders. He says, I am glad 
that I was not there. He says that he was glad. Is not the word out of place? By this time Lazarus stinks in his tomb, and here the Saviour is glad. Martha and Mary are weeping their eyes out for sorrow, and yet their friend Jesus is glad. It is strange. It is beyond strange. However, we can rest assured that Jesus knows better than we do, and our faith can therefore sit still and try to figure out His meaning when our reason cannot find it at first. I am glad, He said, for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. Ah, we see it now. Christ is not glad because of sorrow, but only on account of the result of the sorrow. He knew that this temporary trial would help His disciples to a greater faith, and He so values their growth in faith that He is even glad of the sorrow that causes it. It is as if He said, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to prevent the trouble, for now that it is come, it will teach you to believe in Me. This will be much better for you than to have been spared the affliction. We plainly have the principle here that our Lord, in His infinite wisdom and superabundant love, sets so high a value upon His people's faith that He will not keep them from those trials by which faith is strengthened. Let us try to press the wine of consolation from the cluster of the text. In three cups we will preserve the pleasant juice as it flows forth from the winepress of meditation. Jesus Christ was glad that the trial had come, one, for the strengthening of the faith of the apostles, two, for strengthening the faith of the family, and three, for giving faith to others. In the forty-fifth verse of John 11, we see that many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him. Jesus Christ designed the death and resurrection of Lazarus for the strengthening of the faith of the apostles. This was done in two ways. Not only would the trial itself tend to strengthen their faith, but the remarkable deliverance that Christ gave to them out of it would certainly minister to the growth of their confidence in Him. 1. Let us observe that the trial itself would certainly tend to increase the apostles' faith. Faith that is not tested can still be true faith, but it is sure to be little faith. I believe in the existence of faith in people who have no trials, but that is as far as I can go. I am persuaded, brethren, that where there is no trial, faith just draws breath enough to live, but that's all. Faith, like the fabled salamander, has fire for its native element. Faith never prospers as well as when all things are against it. Storms train the faith, and the lightnings illuminate it. When a calm reigns on the sea, you can spread the sails however you want, but the ship will not move to its harbor. When the ocean is at rest, the ship sleeps too. However, once the winds come howling forth and the waters lift themselves up, then even though the vessel rocks, her deck is washed with waves, and her mast creaks under the pressure of the full and swelling sail, yet it is then that she makes headway toward her desired haven.
No flowers wear so lovely a blue as those that grow at the foot of the frozen glacier. No stars are as bright as those that glisten in the polar sky. No water is as sweet as that which springs amid the desert sand. No faith is as precious as that which lives and triumphs in adversity. This is why the Lord says by the mouth of the prophet, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Zephaniah 3.12 King James Version Why the afflicted and poor? Because there is a certain willingness in the afflicted and poor among the Lord's people to trust in the Lord. God does not say, I will leave in the midst of you a prosperous and rich people, and they will trust. No, the prosperous and rich hardly seem to have such capacity for faith as the afflicted ones have. Rather, God says, I will leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people, and they, by reason of their very affliction and poverty, will be the more graciously disposed to place their faith in the Lord. Untried faith is always small in stature, and it is likely to remain small as long as it is without trials. There is no room in the gentle pools of ease for faith to gain Leviathan proportions. Faith must dwell in the stormy sea in order to become one of the main ways of God. Tried faith brings experience, and every one of you who are men and women of experience know that experience makes Christianity become more real to you. You cannot know the bitterness of sin or the sweetness of forgiveness until you have felt both. You don't know your own weakness until you have been compelled to go through the rivers, and you would never have known God's strength if you had not been supported amid the floods. All the talk about Christianity that is not based upon experience is mere talk. If we have little experience, we cannot speak as convincingly and with as much certainty as they can whose experience has been more deep and profound. Once, when I was preaching about the faithfulness of God in times of trial, in the early days of my ministry, my venerable grandfather was sitting in the pulpit behind me. He suddenly stood up and took my place in front of the pulpit. He said, My grandson can preach this as a matter of theory but I can tell it to you as a matter of experience, for I have done business upon the great waters, and I have seen the works of the Lord for myself. There is an accumulation of force in the testimony of one who has personally experienced that which others can only speak of as though they had seen it in a map or in a picture. Travelers who write from their easy chairs what they have seen from their studies may write books to consume the idle hours of those who stay at home, but he who is about to travel to regions full of danger seeks a guide who has really walked the road. The casual writer may excel in ornate words, but the actual traveler has real and valuable wisdom. Faith increases in strength, assurance, and intensity the more it is exercised with affliction, and the more it has been cast down and lifted up again. Do not let this, though, discourage those who are young in faith. You will have enough trials without seeking for them. 
The full portion will be measured out to you in due season. Meanwhile, if you cannot yet claim the result of long experience, thank God for what grace you have. Praise Him for that which you have attained. Walk according to that capacity, and you will have more and more of the blessing of God until your faith removes mountains and conquers impossibilities. It might be asked what the method is by which trial strengthens faith. We could answer in various ways. Trial takes away many of the impediments of faith. Carnal security is the worst enemy to confidence in God. If I sit down and say, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Luke 12, 19. Then faith's road is barricaded. However, adversity sets the barn on fire, and the many goods laid up for many years to come cease to block the path of faith. Oh, blessed acts of sorrow that clears a pathway for me to my God by cutting down the thick trees of my earthly comforts. When I say, as in Psalm 36 7, My mountain stands firm, I will never be moved. The visible fortification, rather than the invisible protector, engages my attention. But when the great earthquake shakes the rocks and the mountain is swallowed up, I fly to the immovable rock of ages to build my confidence on high. Worldly ease is a great enemy to faith. It loosens the joints of holy valor and snaps the sinews of sacred courage. The balloon never rises until the cords are cut. Affliction does this sharp service for believing souls. While the wheat sleeps comfortably in the husk, it is useless to man. It must be threshed out of its resting place before its value can be known. Trial grabs the arrow of faith from the resting place of the quiver and shoots it against the foe. Affliction is also of much service for faith when it exposes the weakness of the creature. This trial showed the apostles that they must not depend upon the goodness of any one person, for although Lazarus may have entertained them and filled their little bag with food, yet Lazarus died, and Mary will die, and Martha will die, and all friends must die. This would teach them not to look to broken cisterns but to run to the ever-flowing fountain. O oh, dear friends, we are in much danger of making idols of our mercies. God gives us His temporal blessings as refreshments by the way, and then immediately we forget God and trust our riches. It is of the Lord's mercy that these idols are broken in pieces. He withers the gourds under which we sat in comfortable shade, Jonah 4, 7, so that we will lift up our cry to Him and trust in Him alone. The emptiness of the creature is a lesson we are slow to learn, and we must have it beaten into us by the rod of affliction. But this lesson must be learned, or else faith can never grow strong. Furthermore, trial is of special service to faith when it drives faith to God. I make a sad confession, over which I mourn that when my soul is happy and things prosper, I do not generally live as near to God as I do in the midst of shame and contempt and when my spirit is cast down. Scripture, 
O my God, how dear you are to my soul in the night! When the sun goes down, O bright and morning star, how sweetly you shine! When the world's bread is sugared and buttered, we devour it until we grow sick. However, when the world changes our diet, fills our mouth with vinegar, and makes our drink gall and wormwood, then we cry out for our dear God again. When the world's wells are full of sweet but poisonous water, we pitch our tents at the well's mouth and drink again and again, forgetting the well of Bethlehem that is within the gate. However, when earth's water becomes bitter like the stream of Mara, then we turn away all sick and weak, and we cry after the water of life. Scripture, Spring up, O well. Numbers 21, 17. Afflictions bring us to our God in the same way as the barking dog drives the wandering sheep to the shepherd's hand. Trial also has a hardening effect upon faith. Just as the Spartan lads were prepared for fighting by the sharp discipline of their boyish days, so God's servants are trained for war by the afflictions that He sends upon them in the early days of their spiritual lives. We must run with footmen, or we will never be able to contend with horses. Jeremiah 12, 5. We must be thrown into the water, or we will never learn to swim. We must hear the whizzing of the bullets, or we will never become veteran soldiers. The gardener knows that if his flowers were always kept in a greenhouse, they would quickly die during a cold night if they were put outside suddenly. So he doesn't give them too much heat, but exposes them a little at a time and gets them used to the cold so that they can live in the open air. In the same way, the only wise God does not put his servants in greenhouses and rear them delicately, but he exposes them to trials and difficulty so that they will know how to bear them when they come. If you want to ruin your son, never let him know a hardship. When he is a child, carry him in your arms. When he becomes a youth, keep pampering him, and when he becomes a man, continue to spoil him, and you will succeed in producing an absolute fool. If you want to prevent him from being made useful in the world, guard him from every kind of work. Don't allow him to struggle. Wipe the sweat from his dainty brow and say, Dear child, you will never have another task so difficult. Pity him when he should be punished. Give him all that he wants. Prevent all disappointments and turn away all troubles. And you will certainly train him to be a reprobate and to break your heart. However, put him where he must work, wisely expose him to difficulties, and in this way, you will make him a man. When he comes to do man's work and to bear man's trial, he will be ready for either. My master does not daintily cradle his children when they ought to run alone. When they begin to run, he does not always put out his arm for them to lean upon, but he lets them tumble down and scrape their knees, because then they will learn to walk more carefully. They will learn to stand upright by the strength that faith confers upon them. You can see, dear friends, that Jesus Christ was glad that his disciples were blessed by trouble. Will you think about this, you who are so troubled today? 
Jesus Christ does sympathize with you, but he does so wisely, and he says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. He is glad that your husband is taken away, that your child is buried. He is glad that your business does not prosper. He is glad that you have those aches and pains, and that you have such a weak body. He is glad for this to the intent that you may believe. You would never have possessed the precious faith that now supports you if the trial of your faith had not been like unto fire. You are a tree that never would have rooted so well if the wind had not rocked you back and forth, causing you to take a firm hold upon the precious truths of the covenant of grace. 2. Let us notice also that the deliverance that Christ brought about by the resurrection of Lazarus was also intended to strengthen the faith of the apostles. Christ can work even in the most difficult circumstances. What a situation they were now in! This was a case that had come to the very worst. Lazarus was not merely dead, but he had been buried. The stone had been rolled to the mouth of the sepulchre. Even worse, his body had begun to decay. There are so many miracles here that I must describe the resurrection of Lazarus not as one miracle only, but as a mass of wonders. We will not go into detail, but suffice it to say that we cannot suppose anything to be a more amazing demonstration of divine strength than the restoration of health and life to a body through which the worms did creep and crawl. Yet even in this very worst case, Christ is not perplexed. This was a case where human power evidently could do nothing. Bring the violin and the harp, and let music try its work. Physician, bring your most powerful medicine, and see what you can do. What? Does your medicinal mixture fail? The physician turns away disgusted, for the stench will destroy the physician's life before he is able to restore the corpse. Now seek all around the world, and ask those who are as powerful as Herod with his soldiers, or Caesar on the imperial throne, Can you do anything here? No, they cannot. For death sits with his terrible smile laughing at them all. He says, I have Lazarus beyond your reach. Yet Jesus Christ wins the day. Divine sympathy became most evident. Jesus wept when he thought about Lazarus and his weeping sisters. John 11:35. We don't find it often said that he wept. He was, Scripture, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53:3. But those were precious and rare drops that he shed over that dead body. He could do no more when he thought about Jerusalem. Luke 19:41. And he did no less when he was thinking about Lazarus. What an exhibition these disciples had of the divine power as well as the divine sympathy. Christ simply says, Lazarus, come forth, John eleven forty three, and death could hold his captive no longer. Lazarus came forth from the grave restored to perfect health. Do you not think that all this would tend to confirm the apostles' faith? It seems to me to be a part of the best education they could possibly receive for their future ministry.
I think I see the apostles later locked up in prison. They are condemned to die, but Peter comforts John by saying, He can bring us out of prison. Don't you remember how he brought Lazarus out of his grave? He can certainly appear for us and set us free. When they went forth to preach to sinners, how they would be strengthened by remembering these experiences. The hearers were corrupt, depraved, and immoral. The apostles went into the midst of the worst conditions of human nature, and yet they did not fear for the result, for they knew that decaying Lazarus had been revived at Christ's word. Peter would argue, Did not Christ restore Lazarus when his body was stinking and decayed? He can certainly bring the most reprobate hearts to the obedience of the truth. He can certainly raise the vilest of the vile to new life. Many of the apostolic churches had strayed. They had unworthy members in them, but this would not assail the faith of the apostles too much, for they would say, That same Christ who raised up Lazarus can still make Sardis, Pergamos, and Thyatira to be a praise in the earth. Churches that seem to be corrupt and foul in the nostrils of the Most High can still be made a brightness and glory and a sweet-selling savor unto Him. I am persuaded that very often such a miracle as this would recur to them and strengthen them in the times of their suffering and labor, and would make them able to bear afflictions and even martyrdom itself, in confidence in Christ. I won't say more about this because this seems obvious enough. Do not, though, forget the principle we are trying to bring out, that in the case of the apostles, Christ considered it worth any cost for them to have strong faith. No matter what pain it cost Mary and Martha, or in what grief it might involve him or his apostles, they must bear it because the result was so exceedingly beneficial. The surgeon handles the knife without tears. Even though the cut is sharp, he knows it will cure. The mother puts the medicine into the child's mouth, and the child cries and heaves and loathes the bitterness. But the mother says, Drink it all up, my child, because she knows there is life in every drop. In the same way, Christ is glad for the apostles' sake that he was not there for the purpose that they would believe. Jesus Christ also cared about the good of the family. Mary and Martha had faith, but it was not very strong, for they suspected Christ's love when they said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. John eleven twenty one. There was a sort of half-murmur, Why were you not here? Do you love us? Then why did you wait? They certainly doubted his power. Although Martha could believe in the resurrection in general, John 11:24, she could not believe in the present resurrection for her brother. She said, "He has been dead four days." John 11:39. She had faith, but it was very weak. Christ therefore sent the trial to Mary and Martha for their sakes, and he was glad to send it so that they might believe. Observe, dear friends, that these were select favorites of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves all His elect, but those three were as the darlings of the family, elect among the elect. 
They were three special favorites upon whom very distinguishing regard was set, and therefore it was that he sent them a special trial. The jeweler, if he takes up a stone and finds that it's not very precious, will not spend much care in cutting it. But when he gets a rare diamond of the finest quality, then he will be sure to cut and cut and cut again. When the Lord finds a saint whom he loves much, he may spare other people trials and troubles, but he certainly will not spare his well beloved one. The more beloved you are, the more of the rod you will have. It is a solemn thing to be a favorite of heaven. It is something to be sought after and to be rejoiced in, but to be part of the king's council chamber involves such work for faith that flesh and blood might draw back from the painful blessing. The gardener gets a tree, and if it's a common type, he will let it grow as it wills, and will take what fruit comes from it naturally. But if it is a very rare kind, he likes to have every bough in its proper place so that it can bear well. He often takes out his knife and cuts here and there, because, he says, that's a favorite tree, and it's one that bears such fruit that I want much from it, and I don't want to leave anything at all that might cause it harm. You who are God's favorites must not marvel at trials, but must instead keep your door wide open for them. When they come in, say, Hail, messenger of the king! The sound of your master's feet is behind you. You are welcome here, for your master sent you. 2 Kings 6.32 The special trial was attended with a special visit. Maybe Jesus would not have come to Bethany if Lazarus had not been dead. But as soon as there is a corpse in the house, Christ is in the house too. O Christian, it will do much for your comfort and for the strengthening of your faith if Christ comes to you in your troubles. If you do not see any smiles in His face in your prosperity, you will not be without them in your adversity. The Lord Jesus will go out of His way to see you. A mother can let her child run around and play, and she often hardly notices him when he is well. But when he cries, My head, my head, how tender she is toward him! Second Kings 4.19 How all the acts of love and the caresses of affection are lavished upon the little sick one! It will be the same with you, and in receiving these special visits you will know that you are highly favored above the rest. This special visit was attended with special fellowship. Scripture Jesus wept. John 11.35 He wept with those who wept. You will have Jesus sitting by the bedside and weeping with you when you are sick. You might be well and strong and have only a little fellowship with Christ now, but when you are sick, He will be there with you. Though you might walk along the green grass without the Saviour, when you come into the midst of the fire, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you will not be without him then. Daniel 3.25 There is no fellowship with Christ that is as near and sweet as that which comes to us when we are in deep trials. Then the Father opens his heart and takes his child not upon his knee but to his very heart, 
and tells him to lay his head upon his beating chest. Christ will reveal his secrets to you when the world is against you, and trials surround you. Scripture The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Psalm 25, 14. But they will never have such discoveries of that secret and that covenant as when they most need it, in the darkest and most trying times. It is then that there are special loves, special trials, special visits, and special fellowship. You will soon have special deliverance. In days to come, you will talk about these trials. You will say, I tormented myself and worried over it, but if I could have seen the end as well as the beginning, I would have said, Sweet affliction, sweet affliction, thus to bring my Saviour near. I tell you, you will yet sit under your own vine and under your own fig tree, Micah 4, 4, and talk to poor tired saints, and say, Do not be cast down, for I cried unto the Lord, and He heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 34, 4. Maybe in heaven it will be part of your happiness to remember God's love to you in your tribulations. There on a green and flowery mount our weary souls shall sit, and with transporting joys recount the labors of our feet. Will we not tell angels, principalities, and powers about the faithfulness of Christ? We will tell all heaven that His love is as strong as death, His jealousy is as severe as Sheol, and that Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. Song of Solomon 8, 6-7 What do you say, my friend, you who are under the disciplining rod? Will you murmur any more? Will you complain about it any more? I urge you to take my text instead and read it the other way. Ask God to help you to say it. I am glad that my God did not deliver me, because the trial has strengthened my faith. I thank His name that He has done me the great favor to allow me to carry the heavy end of His cross. I thank my Father that He has not left me without rebuke, for, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.67 Scripture, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Psalm 119.71. I tell you, this is the shortest way out of your troubles, as well as the most profitable attitude while you are in them. The Lord generally restrains the rod when He finds His child receiving it as a favor. When you are in agreement with God's rod, then that rod will have no further quarrel with you. When you can look into the Father's eyes and say, Your will be done, then his afflicting hand has done its work. Now I come to the third point, that this trouble was permitted in order to give faith to others. I will address myself mainly to those who cannot say they are God's people, but who still have some desire toward Christ. It is very likely that you have had some great trouble in your life, and looking back you wish you had never had it. But my Lord, who knows better than you do, says, I am glad for your sakes that I did not spare you that trouble 
so that you might be led to believe. Know assuredly that afflictions often lead people to faith in Christ because they have time to think. The man was strong, healthy, and hearty, and he went on working from day to day without ever thinking about God. Scripture An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. Isaiah 1 3. But he did not know and did not care. He left all thoughts of eternity to those who were silly enough to be religious, but what did it matter to him? Death was a long way off, and besides, if it were not, he didn't have time to think about it. Well, an accident occurred, and he had to lie upon his bed. At first he complained and was irritated, but it could not be changed, and there in the hospital room he groaned through many weary hours at night. What could he think about? The man began to think of himself, of his condition before God, and of what his situation would be if he would die. When his life was uncertain, and no one could tell which way his situation would turn, the man was forced to consider. Many souls have been plowed in the hospital and then sown in the sanctuary. Many people have been first brought to God by the loss of a limb, by long sickness, or by deep poverty. Afflictions can often lead people to faith by preventing sin. A young man had resolved to climb a mountain. He was determined against good advice to reach the summit, even though someone much older than him had warned him of the danger. He had not proceeded far up the mountainside before a thick mist surrounded him. He was alarmed. The mist was so thick that he could hardly see his own hand. He retraced his steps, following the way by which he came. He returned sorrowfully to his father's home, telling him that he had been in great danger. His father said he was glad, for if he had not met with that danger, he might have advanced a little farther and then fallen never to rise again. Trouble often puts people out of temptation. They would have gone into bad company and on to drunkenness, lust, or some other sin, but they were not able to. The appointment was made. The very night was set apart, but the dark hand of God's kind angel came. I said a dark hand, for so it seemed, for the man could not do what he wanted to do, and so his course was stopped. This was the hand of God, and was the means of bringing him to faith. Troubles often bring people to believe in Jesus because they compel them to stand face to face with stern realities. Did you ever lie upon the edge of death for a week? Did you ever lie with your body racked with pain, listening to the physician's whispers, knowing that there were ninety-nine chances out of a hundred that you could not possibly recover? Did you ever feel that death was near? Did you ever peer into eternity with anxious eyes? Did you ever picture hell and imagine yourself there? Did you ever lie awake thinking about heaven and seeing yourself shut out of it? It is in such times as these that God's Holy Spirit may work great things for the children of men. Therefore Christ is glad when they are brought very low, when their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Psalm 107.18. It is often in their trouble that they cry unto God. 
Christ is glad because this is the stepping stone to real and genuine trust in Him, and so to eternal life. It is much better to lose an eye or a hand than to lose your soul. Matthew 5.29-30. It is better to go to heaven poor and ragged than to go to hell rich. It is better to melt into heaven by the process of a slow sickness than to go down to hell with bones filled with marrow and sinews full of strength. Glory be to God for the trials and troubles some of us have had if they have been the means of bringing us to Christ. Trials tend to make people believe in Christ when the trials are followed by deliverances. Perhaps some of you have been raised from a sick bed, or you have been helped during a time of temporal distress. Well, have you no gratitude? Do you not love God for His goodness? Doesn't your heart melt toward the Lord for the kind deeds He has done for you? Do you have no song of praise for His name? I have known many who have said, Now that God has raised me up and helped me in this way, I will give Him my heart. What can I do for Him who has done so much for me? Gratitude, I do not doubt, has led many to put their trust in Christ. Besides, if you sought God and asked for help in time of trouble, and He did help you, this will tend to encourage you to pray again. If He helped you then, He will help you now. If He spared your life, why will He not spare your soul? If God has lifted you up from the grave, why would He not also deliver you from the pit of hell? I thank God there are many people who were led to seek the Lord through answers to prayer. God was gracious to them in their distress. His mercy listened to their prayer. The blessing came, and so they continue to cry unto Him now, and will do so as long as they live. If we have once prevailed with God and have found some deliverance while believing in God, I hope that will cause us to trust God for everything in the future. Remember that the one thing needful for eternal life is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you will tell me that you cannot be perfect. I know you cannot. You will say, I have many sins, I have done much that is wrong. That is very true but he who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has his sins forgiven. You know the story. Christ came down from heaven and took his people's sins upon his own shoulders. When God came forth to smite the sinner, justice said, Where is he? Christ then came and stood in the sinner's place, and God's sword went through the Savior's heart. Why? So that it would never cut or wound the heart of those for whom Jesus died. Did he die for you? He did, if you believe in him. Your faith will be the evidence to you that Christ was your substitute. If Christ suffered for you, you cannot suffer for your sins. If God punished Christ, he will never punish you. If Jesus Christ paid your debts, you are free. Before God's throne today, if you believe, you are as innocent as the angels in heaven. If you are resting upon the atonement of Christ, you are a saved soul, and you can go your way singing, Now free from sin I walk at large, the Saviour's blood's my full discharge. At His dear feet my soul I lay, a sinner saved and homage pay. If this is the result of your affliction, 
Christ may well say, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to stop the trouble so that you might believe. May God bring you to faith for Jesus' sake. Amen.